Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by Pharmac. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, and today I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Lucy Fergus about the optimization of care in our older patients. Lucy is a geriatrician and medical director for Older Persons Health, Rehabilitation and Allied Services at the Hawke's Bay Hospital. Welcome, Lucy. Hi, Louise. Thank you. So today we're discussing older person's health and frailty. How important is it to assess frailty in older people? And if so, how do we do this? Do you have specific tools that you use, Lucy? Yes, look, Louise, it's really important to assess frailty in older people. Um, Frailty is a predictor of your being able to continue to be independent. So identifying people who are frail or becoming frail means that we can put things in place so that people can live well for longer in their own homes or which might be able to stop them from coming to hospital. So having frailty on your radar as a doctor is increasingly important, particularly as our population ages. So what frailty is, is a syndrome where um, later in life you have physiological decline and that makes you more vulnerable to poor health outcomes. So frail older adults are less able to adapt to stressors such as acute illness or trauma, whereas yourself or myself might recover well, they can have a significant drop in their independence, which can have some bad outcomes like people needing to go into residential care. If we intervene, we can sometimes improve those outcomes so that people can still remain active and independent. So if you're going to be looking at whether or not your patient is frail, it's a good idea to have a tool and one which is quite user-friendly and really well-researched is um, the Rockwood Clinical Frailty Scale. And this grades people between 1 and 9 depending upon um, how functional they are. So someone who's a 1 is very fit. They're defined as being robust, active and energetic. They commonly exercise and they're amongst the fittest people for their age. It goes right through to somebody who is mildly frail, who um, might need some help with finances, housework, medications, um, meal preparation, through to someone who's severely frail, who's completely dependent and maybe approaching end of life. Holistic care is difficult in an older person. How do you ensure that the older person has a care plan that covers all dimensions? And what dimensions should we be looking into in these people? Holistic care is really the basis of what we do in older person's health. We have to look at not only a person's physical health, but also their context within their home environment, their mobility and their function, and their social support, because all of those things are important to an older person remaining well. So we do what's called a comprehensive assessment, or sometimes known as a comprehensive geriatric assessment, which is where we really look at everything. But we start, first of all, by asking the person what they're concerned about so that we are person-centred and we don't have our own judgments about what might, be, what might be important to them. But the kinds of things that you might look into in an older person who's got some frailty or beginning to become frail that you may not look at in a younger person would be their nutrition and their weight, for example, or their dentition, because poor teeth can lead to difficulty eating, which then leads to weight loss, which can then lead to loss of muscle and falls and mobility problems. Hearing and vision are really important because those things allow you to remain independent, but also having impaired hearing and vision, for example, if you become unwell, make you more likely to become delirious. So correcting vision or hearing if you're able to can really keep someone well. There's other things such as incontinence, pain and sleep that might be more relevant in an older person than they are in a younger person. And so they're a key component of a comprehensive assessment for someone who's frail. We also really want to know about how someone is doing with their mobility, whether they're falling, 
whether they have difficulty with their activities of daily living, which are um, your personal activities of daily living are things like getting dressed, going to the toilet, and your domestic activities of daily living are things like managing your finances, your meals, and transportation. We ask about the physical environment of the home. We can modify people's homes with equipment, um, ramps, things that can allow them to remain safe from falls at home. And we also look at things like whether they're still safe to drive and whether they have medications which may have become obsolete or may have less benefit to them as they get older. So having a focus on deprescribing and whether medications may have been going for longer than they need to in this population is really important. In your experience, Lucy, what areas of care are often neglected in this age group? I think we're all pressured by time in healthcare, and I think we still have a really medical, physical medicine kind of basis to the way that we approach people's health. So I think that the things that are often neglected are things like mental health. I think people's spiritual health and well-being sometimes get left off because there's not a lot of time or it's not something that we're comfortable asking about. And we're not always good in a pressured environment to linking with whānau and finding out what's important within the family context. Um, a lot of family members can be informal caregivers who can be under a lot of strain looking after someone who's frail in the community. And it's really important to hear how they're going and support them as well. They also often have a lot of really useful information, particularly in people who might be developing some memory trouble. So if we can, linking with um, family or important other people in, in an older person's life to get a full story of what's happening and also to make sure that they're supported is really key. The other thing that I think we don't do as well as we could is actually ask people what's important to them. People who are frail and beginning to lose their independence often are more concerned about being able to remain at home than they are about maybe their blood sugars being well controlled or particular aspects of their medical health. It's sometimes more about being able to see their family or, or get out to do the things that they like to do that give their lives meaning. And so having that focus and practicing your um, care through that lens is a really important thing to do for older people. Thinking about their independence, there's a lot of other wraparound kinds of things that we can do that we might not think of as kind of traditionally medical, but they're really important to older people. And actually in the UK now we're starting to think of this as kind of social prescribing. So an older person who is a little isolated could be referred to um, a group program, age concern, maybe falls prevention, um, or have a personal alarm so that if they fell they could call for help. And those things have a big impact on people's health and well-being. So those kind of areas are something that we should be thinking of when we're looking at the health of frail older people. Thanks Lucy, some excellent points there. So thinking equity in healthcare for a moment, what groups in our community are lacking access or quality care and why do you think this is? I think that the obvious group are Māori and our other ethnic minorities. We know that health outcomes are very different for Māori, sadly, compared to uh, other groups within our um, New Zealand community. And we don't actually have very many older Māori in Hawke's Bay at this time, but the population projections are that we're going to see quite a lot more older Māori coming through. And I think now we have to be really mindful that the traditional systems that we have set up may not cater well for their needs. People who have difficulty accessing primary care are another group who may have difficulty with equity of care. A lot of the systems that we have in place are built around primary care, referring on to older person specialists or referring out 
to community-based services, but if you can't get into a GP because they're not able to take more patients on, or because you physically can't get to a GP because you don't have transport, or because you financially can't pay for it, then you are at a disadvantage. And I think the more that we can do to link up some of our um, non-government organisations, volunteers, kaitaka waianga, who may be seeing those people who are hard to reach, the better it will be for their outcomes. People with mental health issues or with physical disabilities are another group that we know don't access healthcare as well, and people with low health literacy. So trying to make our services more person-centred rather than doctor-centred, and trying to make it easier for those people to link with us, maybe using technology rather than people having to physically get from place to place, will all help for us to make sure that those who need us can find us. Um, I work in a community-based service where we go and visit people in their own homes with a team and we've had a lot of feedback that that is a really positive thing for people who have difficulty getting to the GP or maybe don't feel comfortable coming into a GP practice or an outpatient clinic. That sounds like an ideal world, Lucy, being able to go into someone's home. You get so much more information. And you really get to understand that person as a person rather than just a patient. Now, older people are vulnerable. What areas of vulnerability do you see and what advice can you give primary care practitioners to help here? I think there are some, some health vulnerabilities that we don't always ask about as part of our standard medical model. And the things that I see are um, that, that I think we can intervene on more, um, but sometimes we just don't think to ask about, are malnutrition. So older people, particularly living alone, may not eat well. Your appetite tends to decrease as you get older and your enjoyment of food may reduce because of chewing difficulties or swallowing difficulties. It can be harder for you to get to the supermarket to get food. You don't have that social cue of eating with a family member if you live alone. So there's lots of reasons why older people can become malnourished and it's a real risk to their independence if they start to lose weight and lose muscle, maybe begin falling. So what you could do as a GP would be to weigh people each time you are seeing them and to have that on your radar. And if you think that someone is losing weight, there are a number of different questionnaires that you can use to quantify that and then to know what to do next. So there's um, a mini nutritional assessment questionnaire, which we use here in Hawke's Bay. There's another one called the screen questionnaire, which I think is used in the Auckland region, but they're similar and they go through a number of questions such as, has your food intake declined due to loss of appetite or swallowing or digestive problems? How much weight loss have you had in the last three months? Do you have trouble with mobility? Do you have psychological distress or neuropsychological problems? And it just gets a picture of whether someone's weight loss could perhaps be a risk for them and then we'll help you to grade whether or not they should have some intervention. So the kind of things that we might do for someone who is at risk of um, malnourishment would be to give them some written information about how to get some more calories in. And that could be things like increasing their snacks, having um, high, high calorie snacks in between meals such as nuts or chocolate, um, fortifying foods with you know cream on your, on your porridge, um, butter, um, making sure that they're getting a good range of, of types of food in. Sometimes um, protein and vegetables might drop off for people who are going for things that are easy. And maybe they would benefit from having some frozen meals or some pre-prepared meals delivered if they're having difficulty cooking for themselves. We may want to refer on to a dietitian for some more um, um, high-level 
advice, maybe some supplementation might be needed if fortification of food hasn't helped. Or maybe they should see a speech language therapist for swallowing difficulties. And if they're able to, then a dental assessment to look at teeth problems or dentures which may not be fitting right is also really important. The other big thing that I see a lot of is um, loneliness and isolation. So people who are not connected to their community maybe can't get out and about like they did and maybe don't have family or friends nearby. And this can really contribute to people's poor health. So there's some interesting studies from the UK showing that um, in, a, in a group identified by their GPs as being vulnerable and lonely, they then had a, an assessment at home by a voluntary organisation who connected them in to different social organisations, maybe age concern, um, befriending services, community groups or dementia services. For a time limited period, they engaged in those services with an aim that they would then carry on doing those things on their own from there on in. And it's really interesting because after their um, after they'd implemented this, they assessed what, it, what the outcomes were, what the impacts were. And they found that not only had 83% of patients had a positive change in terms of one of their social outcomes, but actually inpatient admissions and A&E attendances all reduced by about 20%. So connecting people and giving people that network is a really important thing that impacts on health. And that is something that we need to do more of and think more of when we're seeing older people who might be isolated at home. I think cognitive decline goes unrecognised quite a lot of the time. And particularly if you're a GP where you've only got a really time limited slot with your patient, it may not be obvious that someone's developing memory problems or having some issues with cognition. But it is something that we need to be aware of and um, again, talking to family members or friends about how that person's coping, or maybe just being mindful that if you're um, needing to prescribe medications a lot or having to explain how things should be taken often, that should trigger a more thorough cognitive assessment. Depression and low mood is common in older people, particularly people with physical disabilities or chronic health conditions which impact on their, um, on their independence. And actually, the rate of suicide in older people is very high. In most um, developed countries, the rate of suicide in, in older age groups is actually higher than it is in younger age groups um, of successful suicide. So we need to be mindful that older people with chronic health conditions leading to disability, leading to reduced quality of life, may be having suicidal ideation, and we need to ask about that and then take the appropriate steps and refer on if that is a positive finding. Medications are something that I always check through with my older patients. There's often a stash of things at home in a cupboard that have been there for a long time, and that can lead to confusion of what you should be taking and when. Also, the focus moves, as your patients are getting older, the focus moves away from really tight blood pressure control to maybe a little bit more pragmatic um, prescribing. And even in the very old, um, a higher blood pressure is probably better than a low blood pressure in terms of overall survival. So I tend to go through people's medications and think carefully about whether they're still needed, whether the dosage could now be reduced if someone's got older and lost weight or their kidney function has declined, um, whether things may be interacting, whether there are timings that are making it difficult for people to adhere with medications. So if you can, keeping things to one time of the day or a couple of times of the day rather than multiple new times through the day. And 
just reviewing that regularly and thinking about the way in which the pills are administered as well. So if there are lots of different things, would it be worth having those packaged up to make sure that they're being taken correctly for a person? Thank you, Lucy. At what point should we be having end-of-life discussions with our older person? And who should be completing the advanced care plan? And when we are doing this, what dimensions should we be covering? So end-of-life discussions are really important. And the earlier that you can introduce that kind of concept, the more time a person in their family has to really think about what they might want and to get that down in writing if they wish, or at least to have all of their family members a part of those conversations. Now, end-of-life discussions are something that we should offer as health professionals, but not something that we can force on people, and not everybody will be ready to talk about end-of-life. What I find, however, is a lot of the patients that I talk to are really welcoming of this, and we shouldn't be afraid to raise it, because a lot of people would like to talk about end-of-life care, but don't get the opportunity, and maybe are not brave enough to raise it with their doctors themselves. End-of-life care discussions don't have to be something that's doctor-led, and in fact, um, there's a lot of advanced care planning resources through the Health Quality and Safety Commission website, which are accessible to the general public, and a motivated person and their family can go through those themselves and put together an advanced care plan or an advanced directive. It's good if they do that, that those resources are then available at the GP practice, and if someone goes into hospital. So if you're Working in an area where you have linked up IT and those things can travel from one place to, ne to the next, that's easier. But if you're not, that, that piece of paper, if there is one, can go with people's important documents so that it can be found if they are taken to hospital and it can be stored also with their loved ones so that if something happens, people know what, what that person wants to happen. I personally think that packaging end-of-life discussions up with some of the chronic conditions discussions that you might be having can be useful. So thinking of it as anticipatory care planning, perhaps in an older person who's got COPD, what are we going to do this winter? If you become unwell, what's your plan for your extra steroids or antibiotics if you have an exacerbation? And then what would be the plan if things got really bad? You know, if a pneumonia came along this winter, how much treatment would you want or um, would you prefer not to be treated? And that is an option for people. The thing to be mindful of is that these, these plans should be a living document and they should, the discussions should be revisited because people's ideas can change as time goes by. And it's good to involve their enduring power of attorney for welfare decisions so that that person at the time when an enduring power of attorney may need to make decisions knows what their loved one wants. I have found in a number of cases an enduring power of attorney has been appointed but an advanced care plan hasn't been made or end-of-life discussions haven't been had and that can leave an enduring power of attorney in a difficult situation um, trying to make decisions on someone's behalf. When as a GP we have concerns about an older person's health, Lucy, who should we refer to in the first instance? Well, it depends a little on the region that you're in and on the resources that you have locally. I find the primary care team are a great um, resource and often practice nurses have linkages within your community to refer people. And it depends a little on what you're needing. So um, the service that I work in in Hawke's Bay, we're kind of a one-stop shop of community-based older person services. And we, we get referrals directly from GPs and then go and visit someone in their home. Um, a lot with my allied health team and nursing colleagues, we sort out whatever needs sorting out. In other places, the, the point of entry might be your hospital-based um, geriatricians who will then link in with allied health as needed. 
But it's important to remember that you've also got your age concern and other um, non-government organisations in your community who can link people with some of those um, more social kind of initiatives or I find our local age concern are a great resource for tradespeople or um, helpers who might be able to support an older person with some of the jobs that they need to get done around the house and those sorts of things. Your needs assessment um, and service coordination or NASC are the people to go to with regards to home-based support services and again how you access them is usually regionally dependent but um, often via your um, your local DHB and they will then assess people's needs for support at home. I think it's also important to remember um, carers and how much support they can access and there's actually a great website um, carers.net.nz that has a lot of resources that they can use and ideas and a bit of a community of informal caregivers which can be really helpful for people. If unsure, I think picking up the phone to your local geriatrician and asking is always a good thing. And I hope I can speak on behalf of the other geriatricians around the country, but I'm personally always really happy just to take a phone call from a GP who's not quite sure and steer them in the right direction. Thank you for that, Lucy. So to conclude our podcast today, Lucy, what would your take-home messages be for our listeners? My take-home messages would be think about frailty and try and use a score so that you can objectively assess what level of frailty your person is at. Think about earlier referral to services to help people maintain their independence. So if you've got someone who's falling or nearly falling, get that allied in health input now. Try and prevent them from having a serious fall and injury get the home supports in soon so that they can re retain their independence. Think about all of those other dimensions of health. Think about what their um, mental health might be like, what their spiritual health might need, and what their goals are so that you're really being person-centered and it actually helps sometimes to come up with a person-centered care plan by having those conversations early. Think about people who might be having difficulty accessing and if they do have difficulty accessing healthcare and you are having some contact with them, you might need to jump on that opportunity to get referrals or other teams involved. End of life discussions are something that you shouldn't be afraid to raise with people and direct them to the really good online resources that we have available. And also think about your community geriatric teams. Pick up the phone and talk to a geriatrician if you're needing help. Thank you, Lucy. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points for listening to this podcast, fill in the Reflection of Learning form found at goodfellowunit.org. You will also find the Clinical Frailty Score and other resources available here. Thank you for listening.